0: It's like when a child who does something that they're not supposed to, but they get hurt in the process, what does mama do? Does mama go, get over it, kid, right? (laughs) Maybe your mama did, I don't know. Maybe she should have, right? What does mama do, right? Kid climbs up on the counter, hand in the cookie jar, falls, jar breaks, cuts hand, kid falls off counter, bumps head, screaming, crying, things aren't good, What, what happens? Mama draws in. She'll deal with the broken jar and she'll deal with everything else in a minute. Right? That's what grace does. And so God here is drawing His creation, drawing the One that now, who was living in this state of innocence, but now has gone into a place of nakedness and corruption and and a total place of of death and, and sinfulness, He's now drawing Him in. And and allowing this opportunity for confession and repentance and restoration to be had. But if you've read the next few verses that we're about to read, the opposite happens. Not because God isn't gracious, but because man is wicked and sinful. And the moment sin comes is the moment that man believes he is too good or that sin is not bad enough that he has to confess it to God, but rather that he has to pawn his sin off on somebody or something else. God's question here is not one of ignorance, but one of merciful compassion to bring His creation to confession and repentance. It is the grace of God in this moment and truly the grace of God that is seen from Genesis 1-1 to the very last verse in Revelation 22. This whole Bible screams of the grace and glory of God that, that seeks to redeem and reconcile a sinful world unto Himself to ultimately demonstrate His graciousness, but as well to demonstrate His glory, which is all of His attributes, but as well so that His creation would then, by God's grace, be able to give Him glory forever and forever as we were designed to do. Adam was meant to obey God and to enjoy God forever and forever. But yet this doesn't happen because man sins, but yet God's grace then seeks. It is God's grace that saves It is God's grace that seals the sinner. There is not one aspect of your life from the moment you enter this world until the very last breath you'll ever take, including your salvation, from your salvation, your sanctification, your glorification, that is not an act and a work of the grace of God. It is all of grace. It is all undeserved, but it is all given as a free gift because that is who God is. There's no part of our life that is not touched by the mighty grace of God. And we see this here from the very first sin, and we see it even throughout the rest of Scripture, throughout all the rest of human history. God demonstrates grace and mercy, and this is going to be a pattern throughout His people's life. Think about the nation of Israel. Right? What happens, right? that we, They come in to... Uh, Joseph is used to bring um, life and Things are good. His family comes down to Egypt, and then it's not but a few hundred years later. Then guess what? Now they're slaves. Things aren't good. Uh, They forgot who Joseph was. And now God's like, all right, time to get my people out of there because I'm going to take them to the promised land that I promised Abraham. And here's how this is going to work. And what happens? He brings them out by his grace, by his mercy. And then they get into the wilderness, and as soon as they see the Red Sea, they go, we would have been better off in Egypt. But then God's grace and mercy continues to be extended. He parts the waters. They walk on dry land. He crushes their enemy and protects them. He goes before them, with them, and even protecting behind them his absolute indwelling or or, or overpowering presence to guide them, to lead them, uh, to protect them, to, to brood over them, if you will, in the sense of protecting and preparing them for the promised land. They move a little bit further into the Promised Land, or, or excuse me, into the wilderness, to get closer and closer. It's about uh, supposed to be about 11 days' journey. They get there and things get bad because they forget who God is, and yet God is right there in the midst. And over and over and over again, that would be the pattern of Israel's history. But yet the same pattern of Israel going, believing God, things are good, blessings come down, and then new king or a new judge or a new this, new that, and then. We forget God. We go down here, we're worshiping Baal, and we're we're, we're, uh, in with the pagan religion and the whole nine yards. We continuously see God's grace and mercy at the top, at the bottom, and everything else in between. God does not change. Man changes, but man's pattern is that of a roller coaster ride of obedience and blessing and then sinning and being cursed by God or being judged by God. But the judgment of God is a judgment of grace and mercy to draw, not to drive. Just like here in the garden. Why did God judge Israel in the way in which He did? Not to drive them to extinction, but to draw them to repentance. And so what is revival in a couple of weeks? Is it for God to drive us and make us think that we're so bad that we're just totally unredeemable and and, and to put ourselves on a shelf? No, but it's to draw us to, to reconciliation, to redemption, to restore us. And this is what God has done from the very first sin until the very last one. What takes place here? Sin comes in which brings separation. Man now fears God and not in a healthy way. He fears God so much that he doesn't want to even hear His voice or hear His footsteps in the garden, if you will. Those are the same footsteps and the same voice that Adam would have longed for just maybe a day before. And now those footsteps sound as if the footsteps of thunder and lightning. And he's hiding behind a tree as if he can escape from the presence of God. He's naked. He's afraid. His wife, he now sees her in a different light. He sees God in a different light. Sin has ruined everything. Now, Adam's response here. It says in verse 9, Where art thou? And in verse 10, and he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He fears God. He is naked. He's hiding. And all of this, all of this is totally illogical. The the fact that you can think that you can cover yourself in fig leaves and, and no longer be naked. right? You're still naked. You've only got your works covering it up then you think, okay, now I'm covered in fig leaves, but even, even Adam knows the fig leaves is still not enough. I've got to hide behind this tree to cover my whole body because God's coming and He's coming to walk with me, but I can't walk with Him because I'm naked and now I'm afraid to walk with Him because now I'm separated from Him. Adam had nothing to fear until the fall. The reason why we, we fear the things around us, the reason why there is such fear and and panic in the world in which we live today is because of sin. God is not the author of confusion, nor is He the giver of fear and panic and dread. Adam should have been at the place had he simply not eaten of this tree where he would have heard the voice of the Lord, heard His footsteps in the garden, and would have went skipping to go walk with his Lord. The same way that you and I long and look forward to heaven to see Jesus and to walk with Christ would be in the same way that Adam literally would have been able to enjoy his life day after day. Wake up, naked, don't know it, perfect temperature, everything's great. I've got fruit everywhere that I, I don't have to work for. I can name a few animals today. And then later this evening, i got an appointment to walk with the Lord. We're going to walk and talk and have fellowship the way we're meant to, but no longer Can man do such? Sin always leads us to try and cover up sin. But it also drives us away from fellowship with God. You and I though now as believers right in Christ, while we can never have our position in Christ change, and that's not because of you, it's because of God's grace and goodness. However, we have our fellowship that often changes, don't we? Think about this. We're talking about Israel, up and down, up and down. Did Israel at any point in their time in history stop being Israel? No, they were always Israel, weren't they? But they lost some fellowship, didn't they? That's what this is. Their position as God's chosen people stayed the same. How about specifically for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses? Uh, How about David, right? They all remained God's faithful people even in the middle of their sin, but yet they had these different ebbs and flows and ups and downs of fellowship. Now, Adam is experiencing the very first one. But yet, though, it is God's grace that draws and should draw him back to faithful repentance. have here, sort of as a side note, sin's root is a low view of God and a high view of self. Sin has now blinded Adam to God's goodness. He is now blinded to the fact that God is good, that God had given him good things, a good wife, a good land, a good fruit, a good job to do, good fellowship, his life was good, it was good in the sense that it was real good, it didn't get gooder, But now it's worse, it will never be the same, and it can never be the same. The reason we find this sin here in the same pattern for you and I with our own sin is that at the very root of this sin is that we find that even for just this split second and the split moment that Adam says, I'll try one bite. In his heart, God has shrunk to be this big and that fruit is this big. So when you and I sin, we're looking... God's that big. But our sin, right? no longer can I see God. What I want is right there in front of me. And it's so huge. What happens is we forget there is nothing bigger than God. There is nothing more mighty or powerful or wise than God. Who is like God? There is none like God. And Adam... Much like one of his descendants later on down the road is going to trade a a birthright for some soup. Adam is going to trade walking in the garden in the cool of the day in perfect unity and fellowship with his maker for a bite of fruit. And that fruit would be sweet in his mouth but bitter in his heart. It would drive him away from God from the very thing that he was designed to do is to bear the image of God and then as well, tear him away from what he was designed to do as God's image bearer and that was to walk with God and to fellowship with God. Adam now sees God not as friend, companion, and creator, but as judge. And his view of God is different. Sin changes the way that we view God, ourselves, our spouse, and the rest of creation. Sin mars all things that are meant to be good as God had originally declared his creation. This is why, before God, with the law of God opened, we are left naked. When the author of Hebrews tells us about the word of God is sharper. Right, and you 2 his sword and, and it cuts, right? Divides. The whole thing, it's the idea of that language is that it lays us bare and open before God. There's nothing that you can hide. And here, Adam cannot hide behind fig leaves, a tree, and there's nothing that can cover his nakedness except for the grace of God. Now, God's reply. In verse number 11. At this point, God would be just once more, to not converse with Adam, but to cast him away. But God does not do that. Not in this moment. Instead, He says, "Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat?" I, I want to break that down for you. What God says here: How do you know you're naked, right? Because I didn't tell you, you were naked before. I had told you, though, the one thing I told you is all this is for you, but this one tree, don't eat it. I commanded this. Did you break my command? So what is God doing here? Is He trying to problem solve and and, and play detective here, right? And play NCIS and see if He can figure out what went wrong here and and where's the fingerprints at? No. God knows what has happened. God instead, in His question, is drawing... Adam to confess his sin. I believe though 1 John has not yet been written up to Genesis, and Genesis chapter 3, right? John's, John's a good, I don't know, 4,000 years away, right? But where John tells us in 1 John that if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If it was true in 1 John, I firmly believe that it would have been true for Adam, but Adam does not confess his sin. who told thee have you eaten god knows the answer but is allowing this time to repent which reminds us of one of our favoritest and most hopefullest of verses that there is and i know those aren't words but you get the idea here second peter 3:9 the lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness but is long suffering to usward not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance now if you look in second peter chapter 3 the previous 8 verses deal uh, a lot with that there's going to come perilous times where there's going to be deceivers and seducers and they're going to uh, uh, go all, the, all against God's people, all against God's word. And, and he talks about uh, the time of, of Noah and how Noah preached and how, how God, the people still rejected. You know, y'all know what 120 years happened. In a couple chapters, we're going to get to this in the flood. 120 years, you know what that was for? Not just because Noah's got to build a big ark. But it's 120 years for Noah to preach and 120 years offered to the people of the earth to repent, and yet not a one would do so. So when we find 2 Peter 3.9, it is this idea that he's long serving that he's patient to usward. He is continuously offering this time, this moment of repentance. That is why when the Bible says today is the day of salvation, it means today is the day of salvation. This moment that you have and that I have is an extension of God's grace for us to come to Him. To trust Him by faith and to receive the blessed benefit of knowing Him by His grace and His mercy. That is, He extending Himself to us so that we might know Him, so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be reconciled. What we also see in... In this question is that no one has to tell us that we sin. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. There was no third person that popped in the garden and said, "Hey, Adam and Eve, uh, see what you're wearing there. It looks like you guys are naked. Here's what nakedness means. You're sinners now." Doesn't have to happen. Why? Because the moment it happened, he looks at his wife. She's naked. She was naked before, but now he she's naked, naked. And we're not just talking about physically, but we're talking about Something ain't right. And he, and he looks at himself. Something ain't right. And then they hear the voice of the Lord, the footsteps of God in the garden. And something's not right because the sound that used to bring joy of that sweet fellowship they would have now brings terror. Cover myself up with fig leaves, hide behind a tree. Adam knows. His sin, And so does every man and woman alive today. You know what sin is. Mama and Daddy did not have to teach you how to sin. You just done it. Right? You, you were naturally good at it. Mom and Dad didn't sit you down and say, today we're going to teach you how to lie. I'm going to teach you how to steal toys from your brother or sister. But you naturally do so. Why? Because this man's sin has been passed upon to us. God desires and allows, though, for confession. But instead, Adam answers, and his reply is very telling of what sin does to the heart. Immediately corrupting it to its very core in nature. He says in verse number 12, And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. I often wonder, what would have happened if verse number 12 says, and the man said, O God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We don't find that there. Instead, Adam blames his wife. But even worse than blaming his wife, Adam blames God for his sin. Here's what happens. Adam fails as a man. I want to give you these these four things here as, as why he fails. First of all, he shifts his burden and his blame of leadership on his wife. Who is supposed to be leading the family at this time? Adam. Who's supposed to be leading the family today? Husband. Father. But guess what? She led... She was deceived, sure. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, but she was leading and talking when she wasn't supposed to, and Adam wasn't leading, he wasn't talking when he was supposed to be leading, he was supposed to be talking. So Adam's silence and Adam's lack of being a man, and Adam's lack of being what he was designed to be in that split second, that split moment there, he now shifts all of the blame and all the responsibility upon his wife. Modern-day example would be this. Mama brings kids to church. She's faithful. She helps out as much as she can. Dad, don't come. Don't want nothing new with church. Don't want nothing new with the Lord. right? Got me and my own thing. I ain't going with a bunch of hypocrites. right? I know how them people are. I ain't dealing with them. right? Kids get in the world. Kids are gone. Husband says, Well, I don't know what you did. I don't know. You you raised them, and now look how they turned out. See, that's shifting blame. And we see and hear these things far too often because now in, in us as men, and let's be honest, and I'm talking to you men tonight, right? There's plenty of you here. First thing when you do wrong, what you want to do? Blame somebody else, right? I want to pass the buck. We want to be in as little leadership as possible. Why? So, Because we know what rolls downhill, don't we? Right? And we don't want to be the ones getting it. And then, not even just at work, we're talking about at home. We're talking about in the middle of an argument when she goes, well, you did this, and why'd you do that? That hurt my feelings. You say, well, I did that because you did this. So it's really actually your fault that I did that. I wouldn't have had to do that to hurt you had you not hurt me first. Right? We've been there, haven't we? It sounds, sounds real, real familiar. Second, though, he refuses personal accountability and ownership of the situation that he created through his own lustful disobedience. So not only does he shift the leadership and the blame on his wife here, but then he just won't even accept that he did the wrong. We don't even find in verse 12, he says, The woman whom thou gavest me with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. But it's kind of like this, you know, I only ate because she gave it. It's not like I chose this. It, this isn't really my fault. It was, it was just there. It was just happenstance. I didn't mean to. Accidentally on purpose, right? Three.